the pursuit of holiness in verses 5 to 7 of 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to begin by highlighting the last verse of this epistle, which is really just the summary statement of the whole letter. These are perhaps Peter's last words before he was martyred, his last written words, I should say. And he writes, Grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says to the church, Grow up in Christ. Be more and more conformed to his image. Make it your highest endeavor in life to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is the consistent theme and call and pursuit throughout the New Testament for believers. And we will hear that call this morning. But we need to ask the question, do we pursue Christ-likeness? Do we pursue holiness to be saved? No. No. No, we stand contrary to every other religion in the world, and we say, you aren't saved once you are holy enough. We are saved as sinners by undeserved grace through faith alone in Christ, and not by works done in the flesh. God justifies the ungodly through faith in Christ, and so we don't pursue holiness to be saved. No one has ever been saved that way, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. But there are people who say, well, if you're already saved, what's the point of striving to be holy? Well, people who say such things betray their motives for godly living. What they're really saying is this, why don't you just pursue your lusts and base passions and worldly desires? Friends, that is not the mindset of one who's been bought with the price. It's not the mindset of one who knows he's been forgiven all of his sins. It's not the mindset of one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have truly been born again don't speak that way. We don't think that way. Now, will we ever be perfectly holy on this side of heaven? No. But we pursue it as if we could. Look at Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained it. And he's referring to the resurrection here, which means that he would be glorified. He would be perfect. Or have already become perfect. He's still a sinner. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What is Paul pressing on to lay hold of? To answer that, we must ask, why did Christ lay hold of him? Why did Christ save him? Why does Christ save anybody? Well, there is a unified answer to this question in Scripture. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that she would be holy and without blemish. Paul seeks to lay hold of holiness because it's that for which Christ died to save him. He says, brothers, going on in Philippians 3, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, one thing. Here's the Christian life. It's, it's very simple. It's one thing, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead? Glory. 
the, the putting off of our remaining sinfulness and the putting on of Christ and his holiness. Paul longs to be rid of his sinful flesh. He hates the sin he sees in himself, and he loves what God loves, which is Christ and all that he is. And so he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God is calling us upward in Christ, and so we ought to press on toward that end. And finally, he says in verse 16, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. What's he saying here? What, what standard have we already attained? Well, Paul tells us in verse 9 that Christ's perfect righteousness has been credited to his account. Positionally, in the eyes of God, Paul and every believer is perfectly righteous through faith in Christ, but he presses on. He strives to walk in step in that righteousness to which he has attained positionally. That's what he's saying. He strives to become in practice what he is in position in the sight of God. And when God looks at us, who does he see? He sees his son, right? And so that's the standard that we are trying to reach. God predestined us for this very purpose. In Romans 8.29 it says, He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his Son. The new heavens and the new earth will be filled with men and women who will radiate and reflect the glory of their Savior. There's nothing greater for us than to shine forth his glory and excellence. God predestined you for that purpose. Christ died for that purpose. And the Spirit empowers you for that purpose. And so we ought to pursue it. There is one thing we must pursue, and it's Christ and his likeness. And if you're passionate about anything, let it be that Christ would be magnified in your life. Now, before we dive into this text, we need to ask another question. This is very, very important. What is the means by which Christians grow? How do we grow? When you read this list in verses 5 to 7, you know, just, just add virtue. Just add godliness. Just add love. I, you can't do that. I mean, can we just clench our fists and just muscle our way into holiness? No, that's, that's not how it works. We can't muster these things up at will. That's not how sanctification works. So how do we grow? How do we grow? 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is it. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of of the Lord, beholding him, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's how we grow. As we behold Christ with the eyes of faith, we are being transformed into the same image. And get this, there is no other way to grow. There is no other way. And so as we go through the qualities laid out for us in this text, we will see that Christ is at the center and apex of all of them. And so if we are to grow, we must fix our eyes continually on Christ. And it's this very endeavor that Peter calls us to, to, to the full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says, so that we may grow. And so we're, we're going to see two incentives to grow up in Christ in verses 5 to 7 of 2 Peter 1. We will see that with great power, 
comes great responsibility. Let's look at it together, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then verse 5, here's our text. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Let's begin with incentive number one. Great power. Great power. Verse five, for this very reason. What reason? Well, Peter had just given us a whole slew of reasons. Because we have become partakers of the divine nature, because of all the precious promises that are ours in Christ, because he has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, because of all this, for this very reason, grow, grow. We have all we need to grow in holiness. The power and the resources are at our disposal by grace, and therefore, at the very least, we have every reason not to toy around with sin or to give in to temptation. We have no excuse. We have no excuse. You say, well, you don't know my life. You don't know my particular temptations. You see, temptation has overtaken me, which is uncommon to man, and so therefore I must bend the knee to this sin in my life. Far from it. If you are in Christ, you have all you need for life and godliness. You say, well, I've had this and this happen to me, and so therefore I can't strive after holiness as well as other Christians. No, you have all you need for life and godliness. You say, well, you don't know the kind of husband I have, and so I can't submit to him. Or you don't know the kind of wife I have, and so I can't love her and lead her the way the Lord calls me to. Again, you have all you need for life and for godliness. Well, you don't know our history. I can't forgive him for all that he's done, or I can't forgive her for all that she's done. Yes, you can. You can and you must. You can forgive all because all has been forgiven you. One look to the cross and you can forgive all and love freely. You have all you need. All the divine resources are at our disposal. The Lord said so and he is faithful. If we sin or fail to obey, it's not for any lack on the Lord's part to provide the power or the grace. It's the failure on our part to use it. Peter says, for this very reason. You have reason to give your life to this, to the pursuit of Christ-likeness. And let me just give you a handful of other reasons, a small handful. Number one, he saved you with an everlasting salvation. He's forgiven you all your sins. He's clothed you in his righteousness He's spared you from everlasting torment in the lake of fire. He's given you all the promises of blessing and reward in 
the life to come. He has set his love upon you from eternity past. He's called you. He's justified you. And he will glorify you so that you can enjoy him forever in his kingdom. And all that is required of you in this short time you have on earth is to strive to be like him, to press on toward that for which Christ died to save you. And is there any greater endeavor than that? Jesus left heaven's throne. He took on our nature and he suffered the wrath of God so that you and I would be conformed to his image. And will we not pursue the same end? Do we have a greater end in mind than that for which Christ died? Friends, it would be completely unreasonable for us not to give all we have to this great end, to the pursuit of Christ-likeness. That brings us to our second point. You can grow in holiness, and you must. With great power comes great responsibility. You are commanded to grow. You are held responsible for your own growth in Christ. You had nothing to do with your election. You had nothing to do with your regeneration. You had nothing to do with your justification. And you will have nothing to do with your glorification. But you have everything to do with your sanctification. You are commanded to walk in a manner worthy of Christ and the salvation you possess. Look at verse 5. Make every effort. Make every effort. The word for effort means zeal or haste or earnestness. There's a sense of urgency to this. It's not let go and let God, right? If you let go, you will coast downstream ethically with the rest of the world. But God has granted you the spiritual strength and the muscles you need to swim upstream. But you need to use them. You need to put in every effort, the text says. And hear this. We can't change our own hearts. That's the Spirit's work. But God has ordained that the Spirit accomplish your transformation from glory to glory after the image of Christ through your effort in applying the God-ordained means for holiness. Here's a quote for all our farmers out there. All the art and industry of man cannot form the smallest herb or make a stock of, grown, of, of corn to grow in the field. It is the energy of nature and the influences of heaven which produce this effect. It is God who causeth the grass to grow and the herb for the service of man, and yet nobody will say that the labors of the farmer are useless or unnecessary. He's right. God gives the increase, and yet we have to work. We have to make every effort. And what is it that we are to make every effort to do? Starting in verse 5. Supplement your faith. Supplement your faith. The word for supplement means to lavishly or generously pour out or give everything that is necessary. Peter is saying, lavishly supply these following qualities to your faith. Make every effort to do so. And notice, we don't supplement anything with faith. Faith is a given. It is assumed in those to whom he writes. Because without faith, none of these blessings are yours. For example, you have no 
power for life or godliness. Grace and peace are not multiplied to you. You have no right to any of his promises, and you have not escaped the corruption that is in the world. You remain a stranger and an enemy to God if you remain outside of Christ, if you have yet to, to turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone to save you. But as Peter says in verse 1, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours. They have all these things. Faith is the channel through which all of Christ's accomplishments and blessings become yours. And it is the ground through which the fruit of holiness grows. Now, just a note on the order of the qualities listed here. Some commentators say that we should understand each of these qualities as, as building on the previous one, and kind of, you kind of get that idea from the text, but I don't think that's what Peter's trying to do here. Peter's not saying, once you've mastered virtue, then you can go on to knowledge. No, that's, that's ridiculous, right? If we adopt that kind of thinking, you won't be able to work on love until you've mastered godliness, which makes no sense. It's better to understand these qualities as facets of a diamond, and the setting of this diamond is faith, because faith from beginning to end is the grounds through which the beauty of Christ is displayed in our lives. Now, we have before us seven qualities of Christ-likeness that we are to make every effort to pursue, and we're going to look at each one of these in detail. The first is virtue. Virtue. Uh, You can also say moral excellence. This word can be defined as uncommon character, worthy of praise. This is someone who stands out in the crowd for doing what is praiseworthy. This is someone who is almost heroic in what he does. Uh, This is someone who does the right thing in God's sight, even if it's hard, even if it hurts, even if the world hates you for it, even at the cost of your own life. But in the sight of God, it is worthy of praise. The word can also be defined as the manifestation of divine power. The way this kind of man lives evidences that he's not like the rest of mankind. There is a divine quality to him, and it reflects something of the power of God. It reflects something of Christ to this world. He shines as a light in the darkness, as it were. And so Peter is saying, don't follow the world in what they love, in their sin and futility. Don't go after meaninglessness. Come away from them and be separate. Pursue that which is lovely and good and excellent in the sight of God. So the question is, how do I do that? How do I live the virtuous life? It's not spirituality. It's not moralism. It's not legalism. It's not doing good things or being nice. It's making much of Christ. Making much of Christ. When Christ is magnified in your heart, when you keep your eyes on him, you won't go after meaninglessness like the rest of the world. You won't go wallowing in the mire of sin. You'll live as a child of the light, not of the darkness. And you can't make too much of him. You can't idolize Christ too much in your heart. He can never be too exalted in your estimation of him. He must increase, right? And we must decrease, always. 
If Christ is increasing in your heart, you will be increasingly transformed into the same image and you will progressively live the virtuous life. There is no other way to do that but to make much of Christ. And you'll never have to wonder if he ought to increase in your estimation of him. The answer is yes. When we give into temptation, when we bend the knee to sin, when we compromise, when we shy away from proclaiming the truth, or calling for repentance, we can be sure our view of Christ is too low, way too low. And that brings us to our second quality, knowledge. Knowledge, the word is epignosis. Epi, meaning to or toward, and gnosis, meaning knowledge. And so this is a growing knowledge toward something. And what is that something in Peter's mind? Well, in verse 2, Peter tells us that grace and peace are multiplied to us in the epignosis of God, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 9, he mentions the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and at the very end, he says we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the knowledge we need to grow in. This isn't just any knowledge. Now, the false teachers of Peter's day would claim to have this knowledge of Christ. But the knowledge they possessed didn't produce any holiness in them. They didn't really know him. Their lives demonstrated the fact that they had a flawed and defective view and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question we could ask is, is your knowledge of Christ producing holiness in you? Or are you more like these false teachers? Listen to how these false teachers are described In chapter 2, they are characterized by sensuality, verse 2. They are motivated by sinful desires, verse 10. They live for pleasure, verse 13. They have eyes full of adultery, verse 14, and are enslaved to corruption, verse 19. Their so-called knowledge of Christ was clearly of no benefit to them. But Peter wanted these Christians to grow in the true knowledge of him. And we can be certain this isn't just a theoretical knowledge, but actually knowing Christ relationally. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, to know him is to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He's saying this is a knowledge that conforms my life to the life that Christ gives. It is a knowledge that demonstrates I've died with Christ and I've risen again in resurrection power. But this relational knowledge of Christ is not divorced from doctrine, right? Doctrine enhances and deepens our relationship with Christ. As we see more and more of Christ and his glory in the word, we grow and we grow in our love for him, which is to truly know him. And so the application here is quite simple. Peter is saying, strive to know Christ as he is in his word. There is no promise of sanctification in any other book. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so saturate yourself 
with the word of God. And you will grow to treasure it more than food and drink and riches because it makes much of Christ and magnifies his glory. And as you see him in his word, you are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, like newborn babies, be like this, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Number three, self-control. Self-control. Here's the definition, and notice how internal this is. It means to keep one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control, to restrain them. This is a call to exercise dominion over your affections. And for all who are in Christ, sin has no dominion. It's lost its ruling and reigning effects over you. Paul says in Romans 6, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Yes, sin is still present, but it doesn't reign for those in Christ like it used to. At least it shouldn't. At every moment, we have various pleasures warring against one another in our minds, and the one that wins is the one we submit to. Take an athlete, for example. He can exercise self-control in food and sleep and dieting because his greater pleasure in winning a gold medal and the glory that comes with it dominates his desire to eat cake and sleep in and be lazy. And for the Christian, self-control is not just not doing what I really would like to do and begrudgingly doing the things I really don't want to do. No, it's the joyful pursuit of the highest pleasure. It's the sight of the glory of Christ. Beholding his glory and his beauty is the treasure above all treasures. We saw that in Psalm 63 for the call to worship. We'll also see Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord. These saints have a one-track mind. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's my soul's desire. And so when we say no to sin, we are saying, I have a greater pleasure. Christ is my treasure, and sin clouds the sight of him, and it hinders my fellowship with him, and it chokes my communion with him, and it hinders me in my race toward his likeness. And so my greater pleasure in seeing Christ and in knowing Christ outweighs the passing pleasures of sin, and so I can say no to that temptation. I like what John Newton says, as by the light of opening day, the stars are all concealed, so earthly pleasures fade away when Jesus is revealed. The pleasure that comes from seeing Christ more clearly with the eyes of faith is the motivation to make every effort to cast off every weight and the sins which so easily entangle. You say, well, what if it hurts to let go of this sin? So be it. Jesus said, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Deal drastically with the sin in your life. Hebrews puts it this way, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. 
You can get rid of 99 idols of your heart, but if you hold on to that last one, it's still idolatry. You are no better off. Christ is still not primary in your affections, and he must be if you are to grow. If you are to make any progress in the Christian life, he must be first. He must be first. 1 Corinthians, every athlete exercises self-control in all things, in everything. They, they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. In all things, make every effort to be like Christ. Fourth, steadfastness or endurance. If self-control is concerned with pleasure, Endurance is concerned with sorrow. Sorrow. We are to endure in sorrow and in trial and in suffering and hardships. We will have all of these things in this life. That's a guarantee. But this kind of endurance, this bearing under sorrows, has a forward look to it. It is says, uh, Jesus said, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. This kind of endurance is able to interpret all of life's trials in light of eternity. This kind of endurance considers becoming just one degree more like Christ, a joy that far outweighs any suffering he might endure in this life. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, though there's pain and there's sorrow and there's weakness, and yet our inner man, our inner man is being renewed day by day for our light momentary afflictions are working for, out, for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says, light affliction, light affliction. And this is coming from the guy who was stoned with rocks. He was whipped with lashes five times with 39 lashes, 40 minus 1. And he's lost count of how many times he's been beaten for the cause of Christ. The suffering we endure now does not even compare to the glory that is to be revealed as my inner man is being renewed day by day after the image of Christ. And if the Lord works all things for my growth in Christ, and he does, I can willingly submit to the refiner's fire. And I can even have joy in the midst of suffering. O oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. I love that. He wrote this in five minutes. There's more to it. This endurance looks ahead to the joys of eternal life with Christ. And on that day, we will know that God was right and he was sweet to ordain all the trials that we've had to suffer because it was being used to make us more like Christ and that is the best thing for us. It's for an eternal weight of glory. And so we endure rightly when we fix our eyes on that, when we fix our eyes on Christ and eternity with him. Number five, godliness. Godliness. The word is eusebia in the Greek. It's a very practical awareness and reverence and adoration of God in every area of life. It is a life that is wholly devoted 
to God. That's what it is. You know, you know what Paul means when he says pray without ceasing? It doesn't mean ask for things all day. No, to pray without ceasing means to never leave the presence of God. You are communing with him all day. As the psalmist says, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is godliness. It is a way of life beneath the face of God. And more specifically, it is living solely for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it well in Philippians 1. This is how godliness speaks. Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the Greek, it's actually to live, Christ, and to die, gain. It's that simple. To live is Christ. It's the joyful devotion to the one who loves my soul and bought me with his blood. He is worthy of my worship and reverence and obedience in every aspect of my life. Godliness says, I live for the glory of Christ, whatever happens, whether I live or die. And you cannot say that when your eyes are too low. When the things of this world have captured your heart, Christ must be primary in your affections all throughout the day, throughout the weeks and the months and the years and forevermore. We are to live in the constant adoration of him and reverence for him for who he is and what he's done for my soul that's what godliness says it has a constant eye to christ and it never leaves him number six working through these brotherly affection philadelphia brotherly love in the greek what does it look like to love our brothers and sisters in christ i'll tell you what it doesn't look like it doesn't look like I come to church because of what others can do for me, right? It's not, uh, I don't gather with the people of God because of how they've treated me in the past. It's the opposite of the loner Christian who has his private spirituality and relationship with God, as it were. Now, Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Brotherly love gathers with the people of God, not for selfish ambition, not to be served, but to serve, right? To serve. Also, Paul says in Romans, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. I love what I see in this church, how you guys greet one another. I mean, hugs all around. We are genuinely happy to see one another, and we genuinely love one another, and it's because we're family, and we ought to see each other as family. We are all one in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. He's saying that all that matters is what is going on spiritually. For example, are you in Christ? That's my question. Or are you not? If you are in Christ, you're family. This is the first thing I must know when I meet you. When I meet people, it's, Hi, my name's Alex. Are you a Christian? Do you love Christ? Is he sweet to you? Is he your portion? 
That changes everything. That changes everything. You become my family. You are my family. Now, how is this familial love, this brotherly love demonstrated? What does it look like? Well, primarily, brotherly love encourages one another in Christ. The one who loves me the best is the one who encourages me to make the most of Christ and to put off my sin. That's the best thing for me. The one who loves my soul is the one who helps me to see more of Christ and his glory. This kind of love says, tell me about your Bible reading. What have you learned about our God and Savior? Are you satisfied with Christ? Is he your your portion in this life and the next? It says, how has the Spirit been working in you lately? What are you putting off and what are you putting on so that you can run the race well? It also says, brother, how long will you be coddling that sin? You can't take fire in your lap for that long and not expect to be burned. I plead with you, put it far from you. Because I love you, I want you to see Christ clearly. And that sin is clouding his glory from your sight and it's hindering your fellowship with him. Friends, it's a blessing to have someone remind you of the heinousness of sin and the loveliness of Christ. The one who loves you is the one who yearns with a godly jealousy for your growth in Christ. And they are willing to be thought of as judgmental. They are willing to have those difficult conversations with you for the sake of your relationship with Christ. This kind of love is not too proud or worldly to invest in our spiritual well-being. It's a blessing to have brothers and sisters around us who love us enough to encourage us in our pursuit of holiness so that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And when we love like this, we display more of Christ to one another and we thereby grow up together in him. A seventh and final quality, love. Love. This is the first and second and greatest commandment. And it's the greatest of all spiritual gifts. You are a noisy gong without love. You gain nothing without love. You make no progress in the Christian life without love. And Paul says, without this, if I don't have this, I am nothing. I am nothing. But how is this love different from Philadelphia, what we just saw? This is agape. Uh, It's not philia, which is friendship, or eros, which is romantic love. In both of those cases, the feelings of love are aroused because of what the person is. Agape is just the opposite. It's God's kind of love for us. It's a love that is manifested not because of what we are, but because of who he is. The origin of this love is not in the object but in the agent. God did not save us because we were so lovable or lovely, right? But because he is love and he chose to set his love upon us freely despite the fact that there was nothing in us worth loving. We were his enemy. We were separate from Christ. This kind of love says, because I am choosing to love you, I want your highest good even at the cost of my life. That's the kind of love that Christ has shown to us. Now, there is a connection between love and laying down our lives in Scripture. 
1 John 3, by this we have known love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John 15, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, if that's love, in what way do we lay down our lives? In the way that says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live now, I live for the Lord and for you. Paul says in Romans 14, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And in 1 Thessalonians 2, in this way, having fond affection for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become beloved to us. This is how love lives. Now, what does it look like for us to love in this way? We could do a whole sermon on this, but I'll just mention a couple of things. First of all, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's so important to know. It keeps no record of wrongs. It may be that some of you have been holding on to grievances committed against you, and they may have actually been sinful acts or words. But the one who has died with Christ can't hold on to such grievances. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't say, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who you've sinned against? I will keep you in my prison until you can pay back what you owe. That's not love. That's not love. Love says, I've finished with myself. If you sin against me, I'm not offended, but I grieve for you because it seems to me that that sin overtook you just now. And love compels me to seek to win you back to the Lord in repentance and in truth into a clear conscience. And just know that if you're holding on to grievances or anger or bitterness, you haven't finished with yourself. You are still living as if you haven't been crucified with Christ. You are living as though all your sins have not been forgiven. You're living as though you never understood the cross or the mercy and the love that has been showing you. That's what you're demonstrating when you do that. 2 Corinthians 5:14. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, that's the elect. Therefore, all died. We all died in Christ. And he died for all, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's the love that God calls us to. And we can only make progress in that love as we look to the cross of Christ. That's where I died. That's where all my debts were paid. That's where love and forgiveness and grace were poured out for my soul. We grow in holiness. We grow in all of these things, all of these virtues and qualities, only as we pursue the sight of Christ. There is no other way. For virtue, it is when Christ is increased in us that we increasingly live the virtuous life. For knowledge, it is specifically the knowledge of Christ that we are to grow in, both in doctrine and in relationship. 
for self-control. It is the greater pleasure of the sight of Christ and communion with him that allows us to say no to the passing pleasures of sin. For steadfastness, it is in looking to Christ and his promises where we find the strength to endure suffering in this life. For godliness, it is the consistent pursuit of the sight of Christ who is worthy of all my devotion that keeps my heart in reverence for God. For brotherly kindness, it is when I help you see more of Christ that I love you the best. And for love, it's because I've died with Christ and I don't live for myself anymore and now I want to bend out that love and grace and mercy and forgiveness for the love that has been shown to me. And I can only do these things as I look to him. We can't produce any of these things apart from him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. That's what he says. We must use the means that God has given us, and that is the sight of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I'll close with this. Let us live, this is John Owen, let us live in the constant contemplation constant contemplation of the glory of Christ and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays and renew a right spirit within us and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. It will fix the soul unto that object which is suited to give it delight, complacency, and satisfaction. When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul thereon cleaves unto him with intense affections, they will cast out or not give admittance unto those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls hereunto as a constant view of Christ and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious Savior we have in Jesus Christ. We love the means which you have given us to grow, just looking at him, and we are conformed to his image. One look at him, and we can forgive. One look at him, and we can love. We can say no to sin. We'll keep our eyes fixed on Christ. How can we ever turn away? Keep us from those things which vie for our heart's attention and pull us away for, from communion with Christ. May this be a church that hungers for communion with Christ and thirsts after you and seeks to magnify you in our lives. May this be a Christ-proclaiming, gospel-saturated people. May we all seek one another's growth in him. May we love one another enough to speak of him and graciously call out sin when it's right. And, and Lord, if there are any here who are still blind to the gospel of his glory, open their eyes. Lord, we need you. Without you, we can do nothing. Grace and holiness are found in you alone, so teach us to abide in you. Show us our need for you, for life and godliness. Make much of you in this church and get what you are worthy of in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.